interrupt our program to bring you this important message. Hi, I'm Chucky. Wanna play? You know, it's Halloween. I guess everyone's entitled to one good scare. Be afraid. No. Be afraid. Be very afraid. Ghouls and gore. And sometimes a little more. My bloody podcast. <laughs> Let's talk about Coraline. Coraline is a movie that, you know, is safe for kids and safe for adults. It is like a great fantasy horror film. And it released in 2009, and it was directed by Henry Selleck, who, you know, Nightmare Before Christmas, James and the Giant Peach, Monkey Bone, Wendell and Wild, like the recent one. And, of course, Coraline and Henry Selleck, you know, he has, he, you know, like when when men and women date each other, some people would say they have a type. Henry Selleck has a type, and it's dark <laughs> animation that everybody I was loves. Like, where are you going with this? <laughs> That's what it is. Henry Selleck has a type. Like you see any of these movies, you're like, wait. I mean, that's Tim Burton, but that's Henry Selleck at its core. Maybe Tim Burton comes in and's like, yes, I sprinkle my seed all over everything. But it's Henry Selleck. At- I wonder what early dating was like for him. Whereas, like, tell me about your nightmares instead of just saying like, where'd you grow up and everything. The normal ice-breaking questions. He's probably like, tell me about your worst nightmare. Right, right. It's not all puppy dogs and baseball cards with him, I feel like. It's probably... Dead dogs. It's taxidermy. (laughs) Henry Selleck. But yeah, and it's based, of course, on the hit book by Neil Gaiman. Man-god Neil Gaiman himself. Uh, And it's got a hell of a voice cast. Dakota Fanning, Terry Hatcher, Jennifer Saunders, Keith David... Ian McShane. I mean, it's just, it's so good. And Coraline, I think Preston, I'm going to have you tell me in a second what you think, but Coraline walks that very narrow, that very sharp edge line of, you know, is it going to be scary enough for adults too, not just kids? Is it too scary for kids watching it now? Has Roe watched it? But like, I think it has that perfect balance of like both adults and kids will find this so terrifyingly thrilling and fun that they just, they had the perfect ingredients come together for this. Is this what you think? <laughs> well, I did think that before. I revisited it last night with my son who has seen it before, but it's been about a year or so. And he watched it when, uh, when Scream Factory put out the regular Blu-ray editions that are behind me. Um, we watched it then and I reviewed it in written form. And so with these new ones, it had been some time. I wanted to watch it in 4K and get a feel for where it is today and how it looks. And, uh, he, he's fascinated by things that are scary because he's at that age, he's five and he's at that age where he's very curious about death and, um, uh, lots of various other, like kind of uncomfortable questions where you're 
not sure how to answer them sometimes. Um, and I have to like go to my wife or vice versa. My wife has to come to me and we don't know what to exactly say. But um, anyways, this film uh, scared him quite a bit, like to the point where he was crying and he we had to skip some parts toward the end and he, he couldn't really take it. Okay, so so he was four when he watched this for the first time? It, yeah, and he watched it. But I think it's just now that he's becoming more aware of things, like he's laughing at very – like before, like what I was mentioning with like Congo or uh, – well, he didn't watch Congo with me, uh, Jungle Book. We watched Jungle Book, uh, the 94 one recently – you know, you're laughing at a lot of the, the the monkey business, all the monkey stuff, like the slapping around, like the physical comedy things, jokes, Three Stooges kind of humor. But he's getting to the point where, you know, when we read books, there's specific lines or moments that are a little more detailed um, that, that he's laughing at or he's becoming scared of. And so I think he's just at a certain age where he's a little more sensitive to those things. Um, so it was a complete different reaction this time, but he sat there like after we watched it, he was looking at this disc, asking questions about it. So his mind, he's still curious, but I was a bit nervous that he was going to have quite a bit of nightmares last night. I think it was just like the, 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 the hand. Uh, well, I was going to ask you what scenes did he have a visceral reaction to? Because I mean, pretty- in this movie and in Coraline, there are some frightening scenes, even for adults, when this young kid goes through the netherworld and sees these seemingly nice alternate reality parents, but there's something dark and sinister between that. And there are some scary visuals, even though it's animated. But I'm curious on something with your son, what was the visual reaction specifically? It was pretty much anything that, cause when, when he's watching it, I don't know, I'm just making an assumption, putting myself in his shoes when he's watching it, he's likely putting, when he sees the parents and the other parents, when you go through the, the reality tunnel, uh, alternate reality tunnel, you get to see the other parents and you get to see them in mostly normal form aside from the buttons for eyes and they have a different personality than they do in the, in the, the more reality based world. Um, but they look relatively normal. And then by the end of the film, that's when things start to get stretched and you get to see more nightmarish versions of your parents. So I assume that he's identifying or putting us like my wife and I into those, uh, into those roles a bit. And so, cause that's what he was questioning after we saw the movie was like, why did the dad have this face? And, and why did the mom look like that? And I, I think it's just like, I mean, the biggest nightmares that I can remember from being a kid is just like, it involves your parents. It involves like, either your your parents dying or looking like they shouldn't. And so I think just having that experience this round and really registering it um, had a, a deep effect on him. Interesting. Interesting. Um, I'm curious because, you know, I'll bring up a story of my own. One of the first 
fun, really fun memories of going to the theater with my parents. My parents brought me to the opening of Aliens, the James Cameron mm. Aliens. And I mean, I was six at the time and I loved it. And I was scared. I was, I was thrilled, you know, all of that stuff. And so that night, my dad put on my mother's pantyhose over his head. So like the tentacles <laughs> and stuff, he crawled on all floors when I was asleep in bed and just fucking grabbed me and scared the shit out of me. And that was a defining moment in my life because I saw how scared I was, but then I saw my dad and my mom laughing and I, you know, my little tiny shrimp brain was like, Oh, it's okay. It's fun. It's make believe. And so there was kind of like, you know, that, uh, those core memories of like scared, but also a happy memory. Yeah. And, I think like is as have you thought about like doing that to row as far as like putting big black buttons over your eyes at some point and going into his room? Um probably not at the moment because <laughs> there was a uh Chucky mask that I used to have, no longer have, um for reasons uh that you'll find out here. Um I had it displayed in my office here and he, this was years ago. So it might have a different effect now because like I said, he's more curious about things because he, he looks through a lot of my movies and notice, and they got really ridiculous blood guts and stuff all over the cover. Um, and it doesn't affect him, but I guess, I guess it's just the mask form because when I had the mask displayed, he didn't like it. Uh, same reason why when I was a kid, my aunt, who I used to babysit me all the time, had a toy witch or stuffed witch doll. And I had nightmares about that thing. Very similar to like the, the kid in uh, Look Who's Talking with like the, the little devil like touching all that. So it just like had that kind of impact on me. And so uh, I put on the Chucky mask at one point and he just screamed bloody murder and I would never do that again. <laughs> um, like that was like the most horrifying sound and like my laughs like dissipated so quickly that uh, yeah, I, don't, I wouldn't want to do it, but I, I think it'd probably, he'd probably take it a little more uh, easier this time, but uh, I don't know. I don't know how he would react. Uh, probably not good if I put buttons on my eyes, but um I would have to do something a little bit more strange. I don't think he would uh, care too much with the buttons on the eyes. Uh, I think it's just the the hands. Maybe if I had the metal hands and I came into the room, the room. or if the door like kind of creeped open and then I had the, the metal hands coming out. Well, the metal hand is very reminiscent of like Freddy Krueger. And that's sure. what I'm saying about Coraline, even though it's billed as a family friend, family friendly film, there are these truly dark, horrifying moments that will scare people like even adults, even kids like your son. And I think that's one of the magical aspects of this movie that it's for everyone and not only because of its story and because it has depth and real emotions in it and you come to care for these animated characters it that but that's one of the the factors in it i think that you have to talk about is that it is truly terrifying in moments right yeah yeah i mean i don't think it should be rated pg i'll just straight up say that now i think it should be pg-13 um because there's 
I mean, as you're watching it, there's like even outside of like the nightmarish stuff that happens, that's very, very left of center as all Henry Selleck's work is. But I think this is a little more darker than night, uh, nightmare before Christmas and James and the giant peach. And each one of those films have, I mean, uh, like even James and the giant peach, there's a sequence, um, where ghosts appear and then you get to see the cameo from, uh, Jack skeleton in it, where he's wearing the pirate hat. And there's a, you know, there's a spider in there. So there's a lot of imagery that he carries across his films, but I think this one, he really leaned into it and wanted to make this, uh, fantasy nightmare that is very interesting, especially to watch it as an adult. Um, but uh, yeah, the opening of the film, as you alluded to, it kind of has this nightmare on Elm street vibe with, you know, when Freddie's like making the glove and everything and you get to see like the, the mechanics of, uh, of this alternate reality before you learn what it is, but you get to see like, and that's, what's cool. Cause you're watching it. You're also a little like disturbed by it. But on the other hand, especially watching it as an adult who has a very, if you're like me, has a very, uh, appreciates this art form very much like stop motion and all the detail that goes into it to see, uh, like when we watched Pinocchio recently, Guillermo del Toro's Pinocchio, you get to see the wood carving. You get to see a puppet carving wood and it just kind of blows your mind as to like how they achieve that. And then here you get to see sewing that, you know, all the, you know, the thread and needle and everything. And it's really awesome to kind of see that. But um, yeah, I think it's very much, this movie is very much bookended by the craziest nightmare stuff, especially the very end. Uh, but there's weird stuff that happens all throughout. Um but it's great. Right. I love it. Yeah, no, it's one of the reasons I love it too. It's how do you say it's um, with, with all those horrifying elements to it, I think at its core, you know, you have a young girl who's, you know, going through not all the way teenage years, but she's going at that age where like, Oh my God, she just wants to be noticed. She wants to, things to be fun she her parents might be a little boring uh and they're jerks yeah and they're jerks because they're all about work they're all about this stuff and you have this kind of alice in wonderland alternate reality come in where you see your parents in there but they're like the parents that you wanted all along they're the cool ones are the ones that will determines yes yes and you go over there and you're like, this is the best. But then also you're like, wait, this is not what I really signed up for because, you know, you know, it brings up a movie that we both love that has kind of a similar feel to it. And I'm going to mention it. It's little monsters with Fred Savage and Howie Mandel where Fred Savage finds this ultimate reality alternate universe and he's having fun. It's everything he ever wanted. His parents are jerks. And, he slowly realizes like not everything is what it really seems here. And that's kind of Coraline and it's up to the, the title character Coraline to kind of figure that out and realize, well, I actually have it really well. My parents do love me. I don't know. I just, I, that the, the story and that what Neil Gaiman wrote and how they adapted it to this film is just mind blowingly great. Yeah. What do you think? 
Yeah, I would um I'd push I'd push against it just a little bit. Like especially watching this round, I can be I, I don't know, really focusing on it from a parent's perspective. Um like I think the parents start out in Coraline a little too douchey and like they're really like trying to paint on that they're neglectful um, and they just any sort of like interaction and Coraline's kind of sweet about it a little bit. She's just trying to get her parents' attention. And well, because they, it, it, do you think that's because, you know, they want to drive home like, yes, these, even though they're, they seem like they could be good parents or just like, Oh, we're moving where I got work, you know, everything. And maybe, but when the, when she goes to the store to get some stuff for school, again, that comes up again, like her, her personality shows through and the mom is still a bit of a jerk to her, despite the, you know, I, we're going through it right now. We just moved into this house and, um, <laughs> but I will not act that way. So it, towards my child, I will explain as to why we're behaving the way or why we may react a certain way. I make it, I'm very transparent with my kid. And so it's just like, uh, that's been a problem with like movies that show parents in films, especially like the eighties. Like, um, you go back and watch some of those films, very few of them like give the room for parents to, to really play. So in this film, I felt like when spoiler alert, I, but I imagine if you've, if you're listening to this, you've already seen it. Um, by the end of it, when everything is all good and it, they seem to be all loving because Coraline had to, you know, save her parents from when they're trapped. They're, they're nice to her, but it just didn't feel earned to me because of like how I, I just didn't feel like they really focused on the parents in a, in a gave them like a, a loving that, that dynamic between them just didn't feel earned to me by the very end. Um, I think it would have been more interesting if Coraline maybe was a little more bratty, like maybe she had a little bit to her. And so she had to kind of go on this journey and learn uh, something as well. I mean, she did learn a little bit, but not to the point where like, it was like a complete, uh, unique arc to her. Um, so I think I would appreciate it a little bit more if that, if they had that component to her, um, <clears throat> it probably would have made the movie way more interesting to me. And it is very interesting. That's just like my small gripe with it. I think that the parents need a little bit work. I would have changed a little bit with her. I would have totally removed, uh, what's the kid's name that's, uh, with the, the glasses and who's like the neighbor kid. Um, that is, um, Whitehorn or something. yes, 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 yes. Is it, was it, um, God, what's his name? Um, <laughs> I don't have it in front of me. I need it. Um, anyway, that, that kid, um, doesn't really need to exist in the film either. I don't think I liked his, uh, other version of him when he's in the other world. Um, but he's just kind of like this unique kid that's kind of set up in this way that you think that something really big is going to happen in the end with him. And he kind of just runs away and he's just more there to be like the comic relief, but uh, not again, not enough for me to uh, feel like a lot of 
like his presence is earned in that he has a uh, a grand arc um, in it. So I did have a little bit of problems with some of the characters as interesting, visually interesting as they are in some of the things that they say, like, even though I knocking the kid, like he says something about like my cat sometimes brings uh, dead things up to my room, but he seems kind of happy about it. Um, so uh, I feel like, Henry Selleck with his writing, even though he's adapting from Neil Gaiman. And from what I understand, that kid is not even in Neil Gaiman's original text is probably just like, I need something to put a little humor into this, or I need something uh, to kind of help move uh, my positioning on the chessboard or something like that. And so I just think watching it now, uh, there, there's, it's a little problematic in some of that characterization. Okay. Yeah. Are, are, is it, is it YB? 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 Yeah. Like YB born or something yeah. like that. Uh, cause that was a joke in the, in the movie. Right. So, I mean, I would agree with you with that type of, with, with that criticism. I mean, you kind of want to see that, um, uh, what's that Pixar movie with the emotions called? Inside Out. Inside Out. Because, you know, with that girl and her parents at the very end, you kind of see them actually have like a real interaction and everything seems to be okay. And here, yeah, you like you said, you don't really get that real love in that. But maybe they did that just to show that Coraline is okay and it wasn't about the parents really. It was kind of about Coraline accepting where she is and that her parents are the way they are and they're trying to be better. And that's what, that's where I got from that because like you said, in the eighties movies and all that, they didn't have a lot of room for the parents. It was about the kids and like maybe like with an exception of the rule license to drive with Corey Feldman and Corey Haim, their parent, his parents were great and they were in through the whole movie and they showed they loved and, Stuff like that. But with Coraline, I get it. Like, yeah, you don't get that warm feeling even in the end like you should, I think. So, but maybe that was their creative decision to like Coraline's going to be fine. She understands now that it's not all about the fun and candy. You have to take all of it in. So maybe that's what it was. Yeah, I think it's just because for length purposes, they wanted to quickly inform the audience that, hey, this world kind of sucks for her. And um, that that was a great way. I mean, not great way, but a quick way to go about it. Um, so when she gets to the alternate reality in the beginning, she gets swept up into the magic of it all in the Pan's Labyrinth kind of feel. And, and then the... And then the things start to click out of place. And then that's when your, your alarms and spidey sense starts going off. Um, so, uh, yeah, I just, I, I, I truly feel like, um, like when you were talking about like license to drive, I also, you're, I know you're going to hate me for this, but Ladybird, great movie about parenting <laughs> that, uh, yeah, they're supporting characters, but yet, they are loving in everything. And I'm not saying like every parent needs to be loving in a film. Um, I just wanted 
there to be a bit of a two-way street to them in their dynamic that, hey, maybe she was being a little bratty and she had to learn something about accepting her parents. And it's just kind of loose with a lot of those things. It's We're making assumptions that, oh, that's why, um, that it's that way. But I just... I only say all these things because I think the movie's so close to being really, truly great. Um, and I still recommend the hell out of it. I think it's one of the most beautiful movies that I've seen. And that's what makes it a great 4K presentation is with the lighting and the colors. And that's how it is with a lot of Leica's films, uh, especially with Paranorman, too, that we'll discuss that. There's a lot of unique colors, a lot of imaginative stuff going on, and you can't you can't help but sit there and be in awe of it all and just wonder how they accomplish it. And that and that's another great thing about owning these is that it comes with all the bonus features. So you can see get a taste for uh how the the sausage was made. And um it's it's really it's like it, if you're an art student, you should be watching films like this because the design and everything, like her core lines look is very iconic. Um, yep. So yeah, there's a lot to take away from it from an artistic standpoint. There is. And, you know, with these 4K releases from Shout, Scream Factory, these steelbooks, I mean, they look and sound great. But just like Preston said, with the bonus features, I mean, there is you know, a feature length storyboard of it. There yeah. is a 37 minute making of there are inside like a studio behind the scenes. And so you can see how people revisited and all of that good stuff and uh, deleted scenes like it, it. It's worth your while, right? Yeah. It makes you appreciate it a lot more kind of like, like right now, Tom Cruise is doing all these promo videos for Mission Impossible that isn't coming out for months and months mm -hmm. yet, but we get to see him ride on a motorcycle off of a cliff and we can anticipate that that stunt's going to happen in the film. But you get to see uh, a lot like Top Gun that, um, you know, he was really in the jet. He really flies it. The cameras are in there with the actors. The actors had to go through extensive training to do all that. And so because you're watching all this stuff, you're watching the movie and it heightens it. It gives it uh, grander stakes. It's a little different here, but um, but watching all that, getting to see how it's made, like things that are just go by in a second. Um, you appreciate it even more, or maybe you even have like a more attentive mind as you're watching it the next go around. Um, like there's a sequence with the other mother when she transitions into this more nightmarish Coella DeVille like stature. And just to do that, they had to make every little like seconds worth because 24 frames per second they had to make every little version to her for the transition of her being this mom with just buttons on her eyes relatively normal and then get into this more nightmarish form and that goes by really really quickly and yet it just took them making that over and over and slightly different and so it's more than just like positioning every second there's just things going on in the bath in the background uh the the circus that happens with the rats uh like that's 
dazzling to take in. And I think this is reason why like this is one of my favorite Leica films is because there's so much energy to this film. There's something always going on. There's a lot of movement to it um, and a lot of colors. And so, uh, yeah, I think it's a pretty ultimate uh, disc to own and have on your shelf just because of, of all those things that I just said. Um, and yeah, I, I think I have to say this and probably Kubo are probably my favorite like of films, but for, for that very reason. Oh yeah. Yeah. Kubo is awesome. Uh, but Coraline just knocked it out of the park in 2009. Um, yeah. And it, it was on a budget of $60 million. It made more than double that, uh, box office wise. And, you know, currently right now it's got a 90% rating on Rotten Tomatoes out of 271 reviews. Even with its its critiques, I don't see how people can give that a rotten the no. line, a rotten score. Like it doesn't make sense to me. Um yeah. but then again, it was it was nominated for an Oscar for Best Animated Feature. I'm not what won that year? Uh up okay so i get it up was better <laughs> uh oh god more uh, appealing people more more appealing and way more this, emotional. this was the lucky year because we had a stop motion film win or is on track to win and probably will win at this point for the oscars but won like critics choice awards and everything and a lot of uh golden globes uh guillermo del toro's pinocchio, pinocchio for, for yeah. being a dark animated tale um and then well, Pixar dark just animated didn't step remake up to the plate. yeah a dark animated remake you know it's yeah. pretty crazy and then you know, like you know that's that went up because there was two pinocchio movies this year one was disney with tom hanks and that movie is probably the worst movie of the year and then so you haven't have, seen it oh man Won't watch it for you you pretty will probably love it <laughs> <laughs> I don't think so. I'm good. I got I got my buffet from Guillermo del Toro, and I'm good. And I find it interesting. My son loves that one. Okay, um, good. But even though I have to explain to him, hey, when Pinocchio dies, and he dies over and over, he can do that. You cannot. If you put yourself in any position where you die, you do not come back. So uh, – it, it is like with these darker tales that I would say are more geared towards like preteens and uh, maybe people with a little more mature mind that can handle uh, dark material that maybe grew up. Uh, I, we can love it just because we grew up with movies like Dark Crystal and stuff that in uh, Never Ending Story, which are, you know, loving movies to a degree, but they do have the scariest, saddest shit in it. Um, yeah, so, they do. Um, we were better built for that. We're we were, age. we were. <laughs> and now we got like very highly sensitive age now, uh, uh, in just in terms of like how people parent, like and how people comment on stuff. Like people are just putting up red flags all the time, and they just don't have the stomach and don't have complete ignorance towards stuff like this, um, which is a shame because. Imagine being a kid watching Coraline and yeah, while it's dark, it would just totally spark your imagination to create the most unique things. So to shelter your kids from watching something like this would be, uh, it'd be a great disturbance in the force. Let's just say that. 
Yeah, yeah, it would. It would. Um, so yeah, Coraline 2009. It's on Scream, Shout Factory, 4K, Steelbook. Please do it. But yeah, beautiful so, design on the covers too. Yeah, yeah, beautiful design. Um, and yeah. so to go hand in hand with that as this double feature, it's Paranorman, which came out in 2012, yeah. and. It is directed by Sam Fell and Chris Butler, who, you know, kind of didn't have a lot on their resume other than, you know, Flushed Away, which was actually surprisingly decent. The Flushed Away uh, animated movie and The Tale of Despero. Mm. Um, And then their one that they're coming out with this year is uh, the new Chicken Run movie, Dawn of the Nugget. But they did Paranorman, and this was, you know, a product of them. And it's got a hell of a cast, including Cody Smith-McPhee, Anna Kendrick, Casey Affleck, uh, McLovin himself, Christopher Mintz-Plass, Leslie Mann, Jeff Garland, uh, Alex Borstein, John Goodman. And, you know, with the success of something as dark or maybe horrifying family-friendly-esque as Coraline, it's like, okay, what do we do now? I've got this kind of family-friendly very twisted zombie movie that has like a family with it. Uh, And this movie, while it might not, in my opinion, have the emotional heft as something like Coraline, it's damn fun though. Like Paranorman is damn fun. What do you think about Paranorman, Preston? I, I really love Paranorman. We watch it every Halloween um, my son loves it. He likes all the monsters in it. And it's just, it's just as, uh, it's, it's very imaginative, uh, with, um, the, uh, what's the norm, the Norman kid. Um, I think you call him abnormal. Um, he, yeah, he just like him having like this, uh, sixth sense of being able to communicate with his dead grandmother and all the other dead kid, uh, dead people that are in the neighborhood. Um, it's very unique in just how they normalize it, normalize it, even if they may look a little strange and offbeat, um, is it's a little gentler, uh, by comparison to Coraline that, uh, yeah, things get kind of intense by the end as the, the cover of the 4k steelbook indicates you get to see it like a giant witch in the sky. Um, but, uh, what, did you notice, uh, watching it recently, like how many similarities are with it in uh, fear street? Yes. So many, so many, it's almost like, Cause so I was thinking about that when watching it. I was like, wait, I've seen this somewhere recently and there are a lot of similarities and it's almost like, well, maybe the fear street people added elements because I mean, this is about a young boy who's going to tackle his fears of growing up and learning to be responsible while kind of keeping within his He's like and accepted own. for his weirdness too, right. uh, of who he is by his parents and um, everybody else in the neighborhood. Um, yeah, but I like I like that how they did that, and but I think that comes 
the that emotional weight and that kind of narrative kind of falls below all the surface material in Paranorman because I think they wanted more fun and surface than what was underneath here, even though it does show up. But yes, I did notice the Fear Street stuff, which must have really excited you. It it, it did. Um, I, I, well, just kind of watching it, even though we watch it every year, I think it just really kind of set in this year uh, as we watched it um, that, uh, because we we recently rewatched Fear Street because I think Fear Street's uh, pretty great overall, um, minus the the middle chapter not completely delivering for me, but that that's near here or there. Um, but yeah, I I think uh, Paranorman is as you said, it's a little more accessible by comparison to probably a lot of the other like of films. Maybe Missing Link is kind of uh, very similar to. Um, but yeah, like I said, there's a lot of, a lot of imagination along the way, a lot of interesting things that are happening, funny characters, the, the overweight kid is a lot of fun. He cracks some jokes. Uh, I, I like Casey Affleck as this douchey older brother, but he's a, he's a bit sensitive too. Um, and just the, the hangout factor of the whole movie is just really enjoyable. Um, the, the relationship with the sister character um, is uh, really fun. And I like Christopher Mintz Plass as this bully, but he, the, the, that dynamic, like you, you like movies where like the, the bully has like a change of heart and starts to see um, like if, if one of the worst people in quote worst people in the area can have a change of heart why not everybody else and that's kind of like the emotional core of it uh by the end of the film is that um we push against things that we don't understand um so when when it cuts to like getting the backstory of like the Salem witch trials and this girl who may be a bit different and um, she gets pegged as a witch and they destroyed her and ruined her. Um, and the zombies were the people that were responsible for that. And they've just carried nothing but guilt for hundreds of years of, of doing that. And then they're, they also are misunderstood by the community. So it's just kind of like this nice little passing of the torch. So you can feel the weight of that and the weight of the decisions that you make. And so it's smart that a movie can have, like the message is very clear. I think with Coraline, it's a little, little messier with this messaging, but it's more interesting to me uh, as an adult. I think that this is why kids probably watch this one or at least from my understanding i think they watch this one more probably than any of the other like of films um mainly just because there's not a lot of great halloween scary like kid-friendly scary movies out there um and so right there's not good, funny nice one to have uh with some really good messaging to kind of ca- carry it home Right. I agree with that. And I just love like the, uh, the writers and directors here, um, Sam and Chris added that like the, like the little nuanced things that like, you know, Norman likes to watch horror movies with his family. And, you know, like that was so cool because 
me growing up, I'd imagine like you growing up, I mean, at least me, like I watched horror movies, you know, as young as six years old. And I, that's what I love and watching it with my parents, watching it with friends and, you know, getting to talk and be scared and be, have fun with it. And I was like, cause you don't see that in Disney movies. You don't see that in animated movies really. And to have yeah. that here was great. I really loved that. That's why the parents are better here than Coraline. Right. Because well, they do push against uh, what he, how he perceives the the world and how they, you know, they see him as a different person. And then he has this weird lifestyle and things that he's into. And they're just kind of embarrassed by it. But yet, you know, I still would believe that, hey, if, if Norman was left at the supermarket, they're parents would go get them i didn't quite get that feel with the parents from Coraline. i think they were so focused on what they needed to accomplish they were truly neglectful so i'm gonna keep hammering that home (laughs) no no well if you yeah when you think about it you know Coraline's parents are kind of like a secondary action to this movie where i think paranorman the parents are a little more on his side and are there for the ride for through most of it, you know, in their own way. Yeah. Um, Because, you know, you'll get a, you get a feeling that in Coraline that it, which you, which which you hate to say it, like maybe the parents don't like their kids in Coraline, (laughs) you know, but uh, you know, they do, but with paranormal, you get a more uh, familial, the, the, family feel with the yeah. characters. So it maybe that's Neil Gaiman right there. Maybe Neil Gaiman just went dark as shit. I don't know. <laughs> yeah, maybe, maybe so. Um, but that's just good. I think if you just looked at them side by side, you can see the, the, the benefits and hazards of, of both of them, the pluses and minuses. Um, but both, um, I think Coraline is a little more artful, um, just because you're transitioning, f- like going from the real world to this alternate world and the alternate world so colorful. And by comparison, the reality that we know is like kind of desaturated and um, only has a few pops with like Coraline herself being like this nice little bridge uh, for between the two worlds. And here things kind of, it's fun. Like, especially if you're a horror fan, you watch something like Frank and Weenie, like Tim Burton's new Frank and Weenie. If you're a big horror fan, especially stuff from like the fifties, um, you get to see like all these little fun, little homages to those films. And if you're a big horror fan, you'll love and appreciate Paranorman because as you mentioned, like it like, opens with like this kind of like a cold open type of sequence with a, uh, a killer coming busting through the door, zombie character and um, trying to get the victim. They kind of play with it a little bit. Um, that makes it kind of fun. So uh, it, it's it reminded me a little bit of like Mit, uh, Mitchell's versus the machines, like how she was really interested in filmmaking and storytelling and the art and arts, uh, the world of art that uh, that kind of carries over here. That he had a love for the diabolical in a way, and uh, his parents didn't have a full appreciation of it. They tolerated it and it shows, but they didn't have a complete appreciation of it to the film. And that's why I think that arc is more interesting to me by comparison. There you go. There you go. I mean, and I just kind of came up with, I was like, you know, with Paranorman specifically, because it deals with curses and witches and zombies and stuff like that. 
do you want to see Eggers take on Paranorman remake? (laughs) (laughs) Even if it's an SNL skit of some sort, but I just feel like Eggers talk to me about Paranorman. Show me a live action short of Paranorman with your, I don't think they would be the same kind of horror films. I think they would be something like Haxon. Oh my God. Yes. Look at Preston bringing up Haxon. Okay. If you're listening to this podcast, hopefully you know about Haxon, but Haxon is a silent film from the thirties, all about witchcraft and devil worshiping. It's part of the Criterion collection. It is amazing. And we reviewed it on this podcast. I believe we sure did. Haxon. Look at you. I love it. Uh, no, that would be really funny. It would be like, it would be like Haxon. Like, I think there would be fun with an Eggers Paranorman movie, but it would be hardcore R. (laughs) I really wonder how much of that is, if Eggers really is interested in those films. I know he probably is, or how much of it is him convincing himself that he's interested in those films? Like, what does he, does he love, like Paul Thomas Anderson, he, talks all the time about his love for adam sandler movies and he shares all the time about movie like really stupid goofy movies that he's interested in i just can't imagine uh, robert eggers being that type of person he seems like somebody who would just go to an art theater if they are showing something like hacks and going there uh and go see it there otherwise he's like no television sets in my house only books that have right that are the kind that collect dust no Um, no you don't want that because i remember reading in an interview with woody allen a few years ago and people asked him like have you seen judd apatow's movies have you seen this you know like this new version of comedy you know with relationships and he's like no and i'm like god damn it like (laughs) why like get this input get this new version of comedy get the you know your let your set in and i would we need to get Eggers on the show so we can ask him these important questions. <laughs> yeah, very, uh, very much so. Um, yeah, you made me think, uh, what's the director? I'm blanking on, blanking on his name. Starts with a T. The guy who did Addiction. Not Ty um, West, right? No, not. Addiction. Uh, oh, I know what movie you're talking about. Addiction movie. No, uh, no not Addiction. Oh, uh, gosh. I'm blanking on it. Where's my arrow collection? I have it. Uh, the, the the movie that we love uh, from that Asian filmmaker that starts the audition. Oh, aud- um, oh yes, okay, audi- dude. Um, uh, uh, Ichi the Killer. Oh my God, we uh, interviewed him, or I did. What's his name? Japanese filmmaker. Yeah, I interviewed T- Takashi Miike. Takashi Miike. Uh, oh my God, okay. he just had brain fart yeah. right there. Yeah, so I was thinking of my interview with him, and I asked yeah. him about his because he puts out so many movies yeah prolific is a word for him like i didn't realize how many movies he put out but it's like there's tons yeah like over 200 it seems um but he makes quite a bit of movies and i asked him about like what do you do in these in-between moments like what what do you creatively plug into to kind of keep this going and he doesn't plug into a lot he says he doesn't watch other movies and so i was really shocked by that i was like you you seem to be making like really different kinds of movies and like um you push you push the limits of it i just i don't know how you can not take in other people's art and be able to create something 
just like that. Yeah. I wonder if he's just like reading the news or he sees real stories in newspapers or if it's something like that, because, you know, I asked him something kind of similar because, you know, Takashi BK could be considered the king or the godfather of absurdity of the absurd. Yeah. And I asked him, I was like, how do you keep on top of that? How do you keep almost one upping and, with the absurd and he gave an answer like, you know, in real life and stuff like that. He didn't give any mention to any inspirations or anything like that, which was surprising because you would hope that these filmmakers that you love, like these serious filmmakers, like Eggers, like Takashi Miike, like these people that you, you just want them like to say like, I fucking love Army of Darkness. I fucking love Reanimator. I still watch it. But sometimes yeah. we don't get that, right? But if they, I mean, you hope that they do because you can kind of share that, oh, they get it. <laughs> so I, I just found my my interview. I'll read this little clip uh, from, from it because I transcribed it. Uh, so when I asked him about uh, finding it challenging to maintain a normal life between the projects you do, he said, honestly, I feel like my free time is spent sleeping, staring off and wasting my time. I probably wouldn't have that many friends if it weren't for film. I don't have an active agenda that I'm trying to pursue in my life. I will be invited or dragged out to hang out with people. I wouldn't have a life with contact if film wasn't in my life. In the process of making a film, you have your script. That is your basis. You have all these people you're surrounded by to turn it into a film. Before that, I'm thinking, can we actually make this into a fun and enjoyable experience where everyone who participated felt glad for to be a part of it? The product of that fun, that life, winds up being in the film. Normally, I think I'm overly sensitive and a sad man. Oh, my God. That's like a gut punch at the end. Yeah. <laughs> He, yeah, he, so many people. I always use this as a as a way to kind of articulate this uh, in the prestige, the fishbowl man that just lives his life uh, <laughs> as a lie, essentially. Yeah, the magic trick is that he's co constantly acting and pretending. So it does like I, we're getting way off on a tangent here, but it's you know with this like dark material and things like that, you kind of wonder a little bit, especially after watching a movie like Babylon, like how many people have suffered for their art um, with a lot of the great right. music that's out there. It's just really, really fascinating. And it does have you thinking about that quite a bit, especially as you get older and older and you start to think about like the origins of, of, of great art and where it comes from. And so. Well, that, well that's we, yeah. We, so, we, yeah. we, we brought this up because Coraline and Paranorman are these dark films that are geared towards kids. They have scary elements in it. We can see instances and aspects of it in other films. And like that question, you know, like, will somebody like Ari Aster, will somebody like Eggers or like a more serious filmmaker love these movies or like inspired yeah. by these movies. And it brings up a great question, just like we talked about with Takashi Miike or even Woody Allen, like they don't watch other movies. And that's also sad, right? Yeah. Well, I can, I can definitely see it with Woody Allen's film. I mean, granted he's not <laughs> as accepted these days, um, but for a lot of it, he kind of makes the same film over and over. Um, 
And so, uh, yeah, it, it is, it is interesting. It's an interesting question, but, uh, yeah, we're, we're, we're getting way off here. We, we are, we, we got way off. We got on a tangent, but I mean, we brought it back to Coraline and Paranorman. So Paranorman, yeah. just like Coraline, Scream Factory, Shout Factory, 4K Steelbook, the artwork is yeah. impressive. It's, they both have like that purplish, pinkish, green, it, yeah. it just looks great. They both come with little booklets, and just like the Coraline, Paranorman comes with that feature link storyboard, all those bonus features that go inside Leica Studios, showcase and reveal how the movie was made. There's even commentary track by the filmmakers, and it's a great listen, and it's just so much fun. I get excited watching bonus features when I get to see the actual stuff behind the scenes in long form, not necessarily like a four-minute EPK. I like seeing it made. Like I love that. I feel yeah. like in a different life, I would have been a makeup, like a Tom Savini type person, Greg Nicotero, movie makeup monster animation type thing and these extras that scream provide do a great job with that don't you think oh yeah yeah i mean we've said it in the past that a lot as it is with a lot of the stuff that scream factory shout factory put out it's a it's a schooling you get to especially with something like this that is very interesting you can see all the money on the screen and you kind of want to know what goes into it and that's always leads to a very unique uh, conversation with your children if you watch it with them that you know when you're watching this it we can watch this extra and you can see just how much goes into it. Um, and I am, I'm always interested in that. That's why I like when it's like the end of the year and we get all these like award screeners and books and everything with animation, we get these nice little books that kind of show you what all really went into it. Like what, what the infancy stages were when it was like designing, um, and then what they actually are now. And then you get to see just like every bit of the process. And, and I like that in films. I like to see the process uh, when it's a part of the plot even. Um, and then to watch these extras that are very lengthy. I bet you these artists really love that. I bet you they really love to show um, what all really goes into it. And, and that's why I'm such a film fan in general is I have a sense of what all really goes into it. Even if it is, if, even if it isn't stop motion to see things that literally go by in half a second took so long. And and that's, what's great about a lot of Henry Selleck's work. And we watched it with uh window and wild, like to see the puff of smoke that comes out of an exhaust pipe or something like that. Like it took hours to create that. And it's just such a detail to show you that uh, it's supposed to be, if you're watching it, you don't even notice it. It's like normal. And, to, and so many things like that are going on in both of these films, Coraline and Paranorman, that you're like, oh, that I'm not even supposed to notice it. But if we, you go back and watch or you watch some of these extras or you watch the comment, listen to the commentary and they point these things out. It's it's amazing. It's very overwhelming in a way because you're just like, oh, my God, it's like the faucet was on half drip and now it's completely open and I can understand everything. Yeah, it's uh, 
it's good. It's do it. Buy these movies, uh, watch them. They, they're the good ones. There's the ones that you want to keep and watch, watch yearly, if not more. Uh, Paranorman and Coraline double feature. It's so good. Uh, I'm excited. This is my bloody podcast. Y'all. Uh, we came in with two kind of family films that are horrifying, but nonetheless, perfect addition to this podcast right oh absolutely yeah like i said we really need more please filmmakers if you're listening make more movies that are holiday focused especially around halloween uh i need more of those i need it i love hocus pocus i love uh nightmare before christmas but i need more to show and enjoy with my my child There you go. You heard it there. My bloody podcast. Thank you for listening. We'll be back next time with another horrifying show and episode. Preston Barta is the man. He is at the Denton Record Chronicle. He is at freshfiction.tv. He is on Twitter and Instagram and YouTube. Look him up. Preston Barta or Blu-ray Dad on Instagram. And I'm Brian Kluger. You can find me at High Def Digest. You can find me on Instagram, Twitter, and YouTube as well. Brian Kluger. I'm even on TikTok. It's a crazy world. Um, and He's an actor. He, yeah, I'm an actor and a husky model. <laughs> yeah. And uh, you'll be hearing from Preston and I and our co-host Dan Moran very soon on our other podcast, Fear and Loathing in Cinema. We have a fantastic episode coming up on that. I'm very excited for, which I'm trying to think, did we do this on my bloody podcast? What? The, our, our upcoming episode. To do, the, do that movie? I don't, yeah. I don't think so. No, I'm going to look think... real quick and make sure. Okay. I don't remember doing it, but I remember when it came out, I'm going to look. I, I might, I might've picked it as, I think I might've picked it as a uh, bloody recommendation, but I do not think that we used it as a full episode. Okay. I'm, I'm looking, I'm looking. Because uh, I, I think the reason why I brought it up as a bloody recommendation, because I watched it, this was years ago, because I have a VHS copy of it. And so yeah, I recently no shared it on my Instagram uh, at that time. And then I was like, okay, I'm going to recommend this one. Okay. Yeah. No, there's a, that we did not do it. So I'm very excited. <laughs> well, there we go. We're safe. Yeah, we're so safe. We're nice safe. little tease for you. Yeah. Where it's good. It's going to be good. See if you can guess what it is. Let us know in our social media, but we love you. Thank you as always for listening. We'll be back with another episode of my bloody podcast very soon. Until then, watch Coraline and Paranorman.